Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? Bricket Bottom by Amias Northcote the Reverend Arthur Maydew was the hard-working incumbent of a large parish in one of our manufacturing towns. He was also a student and a man of no strong physique, so that when an opportunity was presented to him to take an annual holiday by exchanging parsonages with an elderly clergyman, Mr. Roberts, the squawson of the parish of Overbury, and an acquaintance of his own, he was glad to avail himself of it. Overbury is a small and very remote village in one of our most lovely and rural counties, and Mr. Roberts had long held the living of it. Without further delay, we can transport Mr. Major and his family, which consisted only of two daughters, to their temporary home. The two young ladies, Alice and Maggie, the heroines of the narrative, were at that time aged 26 and 24 years respectively. Both of them were attractive girls, fond of such society as they could find in their own parish, and the former especially, always pleased to extend the circle of their acquaintance. Although the elder in years, Alice in many ways yielded place to her sister, who was the more energetic and practical, and upon whose shoulders the bulk of the family cares and responsibilities rested. Alice was inclined to be absent-minded and emotional and devote more of her thoughts and time to speculations of an abstract nature than her sister. Both of the girls, however, rejoiced at the prospect of a period of quiet and rest in a pleasant country neighbourhood, and both were gratified at knowing that their father would find in Mr. Roberts' library much that would entertain his mind, and in Mr. Roberts' garden an opportunity to indulge freely in his favourite game of croquet. They would have, no doubt, preferred some cheerful neighbours, but Mr. Roberts was positive in his assurances that there was no one in the neighbourhood whose acquaintance would be of interest to them. The first few weeks of their new life passed pleasantly for the Maydew family. Mr. Maydew quickly gained renewed vigour in his quiet and congenial surroundings and in the delightful air, while his daughters spent much of their time in long walks about the country and exploring its beauties. One evening, late in August, the two girls were returning from a long walk along one of their favourite paths, which led along the side of the downs. On their right as they walked, the ground fell sharply away to a narrow glen named Bricket Bottom, about three-quarters of a mile in length, along the bottom of which ran a little-used country road leading to a farm known as Blaze's Farm, and then onward and upward to lose itself as a sheep track on the higher downs. On their side of the slope, some scattered trees and bushes grew, but beyond the lane, and running up over the farther slope of the glen, was a thick wood, which extended away to Carew Court, the seat of a neighbouring magnate, Lord Carew. On their left, the open down rose above them, and beyond its crest lay Overbury. The girls were walking hastily, as they were later than they had intended to be, and were anxious to reach home. At a certain point at which they now arrived, the path forked, the right-hand branch leading down into Bricket Bottom and the left-hand turning up over the down to Overbury. Just as they were about to turn to the left-hand path, Alice suddenly stopped and, pointing downwards, exclaimed, "'How very curious, Maggie! Look, 
There's a house down there in the bottom, which we have, or at least I have, never noticed before, often as we have walked up the bottom. Maggie followed with her eyes her sister's pointing finger. I don't see any house, she said. Why, Maggie, said her sister, can't you see it? A quaint-looking, old-fashioned red brick house, just there, with a road bent to the right. It seems to be standing in a nice, well-kept garden, too. Maggie looked again, but the light was beginning to fade in the glen, and she was short-sighted to boot. I certainly don't see anything, she said, but then I'm so blind, and the light is getting bad. Yes, uh, perhaps I, I do see a house, she added, straining her eyes. Well, it is there, replied her sister, and tomorrow we will come and explore it. Maggie agreed readily enough, and the sisters went home, still speculating on how they had happened not to notice the house before, and resolving firmly on an expedition thither the next day. However, the expedition did not come off as planned, for that evening Maggie slipped on the stairs and fell, spraining her ankle in such a fashion as to preclude walking for some time. Notwithstanding the accident to her sister, Alice remained possessed by the idea of making further investigations into the house, she had looked down upon from the hill the evening before, and the next day, having seen Maggie carefully settled for the afternoon, she started off for Bricket Bottom. She returned in triumph and much intrigued over her discoveries, which she eagerly narrated to her sister. Yes, there was a nice old-fashioned red brick house, not very large, and set in a charming old-world garden in the bottom. It stood on a tongue of land jutting out from the woods, just at the point where the lane, after a fairly straight course from its junction with the main road half a mile away, turned sharply to the right in the direction of Blaze's farm. More than that, Alice had seen the people of the house, whom she described as an old gentleman and a lady, presumably his wife. She had not clearly made out the gentleman who was sitting in the porch, but the old lady, who had been in the garden, busy with her flowers, had looked up and smiled pleasantly at her as she passed. She was sure, she said, that they were nice people, and that it would be pleasant to make their acquaintance. Maggie was not quite satisfied with Alice's story. She was of a more prudent and retiring nature than her sister. She had an uneasy feeling that if the old couple had been desirable or attractive neighbours, Mr Roberts would have mentioned them and knowing Alice's nature, she said what she could to discourage her vague idea of endeavouring to make acquaintance with the owners of the red brick house. On the following morning, when Alice came to her sister's room to inquire how she did, Maggie noticed that she looked pale and rather absent-minded, and after a few commonplace remarks had passed, she asked, "'What's the matter, Alice? You don't look yourself this morning.' Her sister gave a slightly embarrassed laugh, Oh, I'm all right, she replied, only I didn't sleep very well. I kept on dreaming about the house. It was such an odd dream, too. The house seemed to be home and yet to be different. What? Is that house in Bricket Bottom? said Maggie. Why, what is the matter with you? You seem to be quite crazy about the place. Well, it is curious, isn't it, Maggie, that we should only have just discovered it and that it looks to be lived in by nice people. I wish we could get to know them. Maggie didn't care to resume the argument of the night before, and the subject dropped. Nor did Alice again refer to the house or its inhabitants for some little time. In fact, for some days the weather was wet, and Alice was forced to abandon her walks. But when the weather once more became fine, she resumed them, and Maggie suspected that Bricket Bottom 
formed one of her sister's favourite expeditions. Maggie became anxious over her sister, who seemed to grow daily more absent-minded and silent, but she refused to be drawn into any confidential talk, and Maggie was nonplussed. One day, however, Alice returned from her afternoon walk in an unusually excited state of mind, of which Maggie sought an explanation. It came with a rush. Alice said that that afternoon, as she approached the house in Brickett Bottom, who was, as usual, busy in her garden, had walked down to the gate as she passed and had wished her good day. Alice had replied, and pausing, a short conversation had followed. Alice couldn't remember the exact tenor of it, but after she had paid a compliment to the old lady's flowers, the latter had rather diffidently asked her to enter the house for a closer view. Alice had hesitated, and the old lady had said, "'Don't be afraid of me, my dear.' I like to see young ladies about me, and my husband finds their society quite necessary to him. After a pause, she went on. Of course, nobody has told you about us. My husband is Colonel Paxton, late of the Indian Army, and we have been here for many, many years. It's rather lonely for so few people ever see us. Do come in and meet the Colonel. I hope you didn't go in, said Maggie rather sharply. Why not? replied Alice. "'Well, I don't like Mrs. Paxton asking you in in that way,' answered Maggie. "'I, I don't see what harm there was in the invitation,' said Alice. I, "'I didn't go in because it was getting late and I was anxious to get home, but—' "'But what?' asked Maggie. Alice shrugged her shoulders. "'Well,' she said, "'I have accepted Mrs. Paxton's invitation to pay her a little visit tomorrow,' and she gazed defiantly at Maggie. Maggie became distinctly uneasy on hearing of this resolution.' She didn't like the idea of her impulsive sister visiting people on such slight acquaintance, especially as they had never heard them mentioned before. She endeavoured by all means short of appealing to Mr. Maydew to dissuade her sister from going, at any rate until there had been time to make some inquiries as to the Paxtons. Alice, however, was obdurate. What harm could happen to her? she asked. Mrs. Paxton was a charming old lady. She was going early in the afternoon for a short visit. She would be back for tea and croquet with her father, and anyway, now that Maggie was laid up, long solitary walks were unendurable, and she wasn't going to let slip the chance of following up what promised to be a pleasant acquaintance. Maggie could do nothing more. Her ankle was better, and she was able to get down to the garden and sit in a long chair near her father, but walking was still quite out of the question. And it was with some misgivings that on the following day she watched Alice depart gaily for her visit promising to be back by half-past four at the very latest. The afternoon passed quietly till nearly five, when Mr. Maydew, looking up from his book, noticed Maggie's uneasy expression and asked, "'Where's Alice?' "'Out for a walk,' replied Maggie. And then, after a short pause, she went on, "'And she has also gone to pay a call on some neighbours whom she has recently discovered.' "'Neighbours?' ejaculated Mr. Maydew. "'What neighbours?' "'Mr. Roberts never spoke of any neighbours to me.' "'Well, I don't know much about them,' answered Maggie. "'Only Alice and I were out walking the day of my accident and saw, "'or at least she saw, for I'm so blind I couldn't quite make it out, "'a house in Brickett Bottom. "'The next day she went to look at it closer, "'and yesterday she told me that she had made the acquaintance "'of the people living in it. "'She says that they're a retired Indian officer and his wife, "'a Colonel and Mrs. Paxton, "'and Alice describes Mrs. Paxton as a charming old lady.' who pressed her to come in and see them, and she's gone this afternoon. But 
She would be back long before this. Mr. Mayhew was silent for a moment and then said, I am not well pleased about this. Alice should not be so impulsive and scrape acquaintance with absolutely unknown people. Had there been nice neighbours in Bricketbottom, I'm certain Mr. Roberts would have told us. The conversation dropped, but both father and daughter were disturbed and uneasy, and tea having been finished and the clock striking half-past five, Mr. Maydew asked Maggie, When did you say Alice would be back? Before half-past four at the latest, father. Well, what can she be doing? What can have delayed her? You say you didn't see the house, he went on. No, said Maggie, I cannot say I did. It was getting rather dark, and, and you know how short-sighted I am. But surely you must have seen it some other time, said her father. That's the strangest part of the whole affair, answered Maggie. We have often walked up the bottom, and but I never noticed the house, nor had Alice till that evening. I wonder, she went on after a short pause, if it would not be well to ask Smith to harness the pony and drive over to bring her back. I'm not happy about her. I, I'm afraid. Afraid of what? said her father in the irritated voice of a man who was growing frightened. What can have gone wrong in this quiet place? Still, I'll send Smith over for her. So saying, he rose from his chair and sought out Smith, the rather dull-witted gardener-groom attached to Mr. Robert's service. Smith, he said, I want you to harness the pony at once and go over to Colonel Paxton's in Bricket Bottom and bring Miss Maydew home. The man stared at him. Go where, sir? he asked. Mr. Maydew repeated the order, and the man, still staring stupidly, answered, I never heard of Colonel Paxton, sir. I don't know what else you mean. Mr. Maydew was now growing really anxious. Well, harness the pony at once, he said, and going back to Maggie, he told her of what he called Smith's stupidity, and asked her if she felt that her ankle would be strong enough to permit her to go with him and Smith to the bottom to point out the house. Maggie agreed readily and in a few minutes the party started off. Bricket Bottom, although not more than three-quarters of a mile away over the downs, was at least three miles by road, and as it was nearly six o'clock before Mr. Maydew left the vicarage, and the pony was old and slow, it was getting late before the entrance to Bricket Bottom was reached. Turning into the lane, the cart proceeded slowly up the bottom, Mr. Maydew and Maggie looking anxiously from side to side, while Smith drove stolidly on, looking neither to right nor left. "'Where's the house?' said Mr. Maydew presently. "'At the bend of the road,' answered Maggie, her heart sickening, as she looked out through the failing light to see the trees stretching their ranks in unbroken formation along it. The cart reached the bend. "'It should be here,' whispered Maggie. They pulled up. Just in front of them the road bent to the right round a tongue of land, which, unlike the rest of the right-hand side of the road, was free from trees and was covered only by rough grass and stray bushes. A closer inspection disclosed evident signs of terraces having once been formed on it, but of a house there was no trace. "'Is this the place?' said Mr. Maydew in a low voice. Maggie nodded. "'But there's no house here,' said her father. "'What does it all mean? "'Are you sure of yourself, Maggie?' Where is Alice? Before Maggie could answer, a voice was heard calling, Father, Maggie! The sound of the voice was thin and high, and paradoxically it sounded both very near and yet as if it came from some infinite distance. The cry was thrice repeated, and then silence fell.
Mr. Maydew and Maggie stared at each other. That was Alice's voice, said Mr. Maydew huskily. She is near and in trouble and is calling us. Which way do you think it came from, Smith? he added, turning to the gardener. I didn't hear anybody calling, said the man. Nonsense, answered Mr. Maydew. And then he and Maggie both began to call, Alice, Alice, where are you? There was no reply, and Mr. Maydew sprang from the cart, at the same time bidding Smith to hand the reins to Maggie and come and search for the missing girl. Smith obeyed him, and both men, scrambling up the turfy bit of ground, began to search and call through the neighbouring wood. They heard and saw nothing, however, and after an agonised search, Mr. Maydew ran down to the cart and begged Maggie to drive on to Blaze's farm for help, leaving himself and Smith to continue the search. Maggie followed her father's instructions, and was fortunate enough to find Mr. Rumbold, the farmer, his two sons, and a couple of labourers just returning from the harvest field. She explained what had happened, and the farmer and his men promptly volunteered to form a search party, though Maggie, in spite of her anxiety, noticed a queer expression on Mr. Rumbold's face as she told him her tale. The party, provided with lanterns, now went down the bottom, joined Mr. Maydew and Smith, and made an exhaustive but absolutely fruitless search of the woods near the bend of the road. No trace of the missing girl was to be found, and after a long and anxious time the search was abandoned, one of the young Rumbolds volunteering to ride into the nearest town and notify the police. Maggie, though with little hope in her own heart, endeavoured to cheer her father on their homeward way, with the idea that Alice might have returned to Overbury over the downs whilst they were going by road to the bottom, and that she had seen them and called to them in jest when they were opposite the tongue of land. However, when they reached home there was no Alice, and though the next day their search was resumed and full inquiries were instituted by the police, all was to no purpose. No trace of Alice was ever found. The last human being that saw her having been an old woman who had met her going down the path into the bottom on the afternoon of her disappearance, and who described her as smiling, but looking queer-like. This is the end of the story, but the following may throw some light upon it. The history of Alice's mysterious disappearance became widely known through the medium of the press, and Mr. Roberts, distressed beyond measure at what had taken place, returned in all haste Overbury to offer what comfort and help he could give his afflicted friend and tenant. He called upon the Maytews, sat for a short time in silence. Then he said, "'Have you ever heard any local gossip concerning this Colonel and Mrs. Paxton?' "'No,' replied Mr. Maydew. "'I never heard their names until the day of my poor daughter's fatal visit.' "'Well,' said Mr. Roberts, "'I will tell you all I can about them, which is not very much, I fear.' He paused, and then went on. "'I am now nearly seventy-five years old.' and for nearly seventy years no house has stood in Bricket Bottom. But when I was a child of about five, there was an old-fashioned red-brick house standing in a garden on the bend of the road, such as you have described. It was owned and lived in by a retired Indian soldier and his wife, a colonel and Mrs. Paxton. At the time I speak of, certain events having taken place at the house, and the old couple having died, it was sold by their heirs to Lord Carew, who shortly after pulled it down, on the ground that it interfered with his shooting. Colonel and Mrs. Paxton were well known to my father, 
who was the clergyman here before me, and to the neighbourhood in general. They lived quietly and were not unpopular, but the colonel was supposed to possess a violent and vindictive temper. Their family consisted only of themselves, their daughter and a couple of servants, the colonel's old army servant and his Eurasian wife. Well, I cannot tell you the details of what happened. I was only a child. My father never liked gossip, and in later years, when he talked to me on the subject, he always avoided any appearance of exaggeration or sensationalism. However, it is known that Miss Paxton fell in love with and became engaged to a young man to whom her parents took a strong dislike. They used every possible means to break off the match, and many rumours were set on foot as to their conduct, undue influence, even cruelty, were charged against them. I do not know the truth. All I can say is that Miss Paxton died, and a very bitter feeling against her parents sprang up. My father, however, continued to call, but was rarely admitted. In fact, he never saw Colonel Paxton after his daughter's death, and only saw Mrs. Paxton once or twice. He described her as an utterly broken woman, and was not surprised at her following her daughter to the grave in about three months' time. Colonel Paxton became, if possible, more of a recluse than ever after his wife's death, and himself died not more than a month after her under circumstances which pointed to suicide. Again, a crop of rumours sprang up, but there's no one in particular to take action. The doctor certified death from natural causes, and Colonel Paxton, like his wife and daughter, was buried in this churchyard. The property passed to a distant relative, who came down to it for one night shortly afterwards, but never came again, having apparently conceived a violent dislike to the place, but arranged a pension off the servants, and then sold the house to Lord Carrier, who was glad to purchase this little island in the middle of his property. He pulled it down soon after he'd bought it, and the garden was left to relapse into a wilderness. Mr. Roberts paused. Those are all the facts, he added. But there is something more, said Maggie. Mr. Roberts hesitated for a while. You have a right to know all, he said to himself. Then louder, he continued. What I'm now going to tell you is really rumour, vague and uncertain, I cannot fathom its truth or its meaning. About five years after the house had been pulled down, a young maidservant at Carew Court was out walking one afternoon. She was a stranger to the village and a new coiner to the court. On returning home to tea, she told her fellow servants that as she walked down Bricket Bottom, which place she described clearly, she passed a red brick house at the bend of the road, and a kind-faced old lady had asked her to step in for a while. She didn't go in, not because she had any suspicion of there being anything uncanny, but simply because she feared to be late for tea. I do not think she ever visited the bottom again, and she had no other similar experience, so far as I'm aware. Two or three years later, shortly after my father's death, a travelling tinker with his wife and daughter camped for the night at the foot of the bottom. The girl strolled away up the glen to gather blackberries and was never seen or heard of again. She was searched for in vain. Of course, one does not know the truth, and she may have run away voluntarily from her parents, although there was no known cause for her doing so. That, concluded Mr. Roberts, is all I can tell you of either facts or rumours. All that I can do now is pray for you and for her. 
So that was Bricket Bottom by Amias Northcote. And I think you probably do pronounce it Amias. Amias, Amias. Sounds more amiable. And uh, I got this from the Project Gutenberg homepage. I don't know if you know, but there are two. There's Project Gutenberg and Gutenberg Australia. There are other ones, Faded Page, Archive.org, where you can get a lot of these as ebooks if you want to read them. Um, and that's where I got it. But I was alerted to its existence by Jay Rothermel, who's a patron of the show and also a great commentator and learned gentleman about ghost stories. He's got a blog called Easily Distracted. So I'll, if I remember, I'll put a note to it in the, in the a link to it in the notes. So basically, if you look at the bookshops or Amazon and things like that, you see that Amius Northcote is compared with M.R. James, Arthur Macken and Algernon Blackwood. This story was published by him in 1921 in a, a, a book called In Ghostly Company. I don't have many biographical facts. I see that he was born in 1864, died in 1923, so he published this two years before he died. And he was the youngest child and seventh son of Sir Stafford Northcote, the first Earl of Idsley, and was the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Disraeli. So, and his, his mother was the daughter of a baron. He had two children, a daughter, Cecilia, and a son, the Reverend Dudley Northcote, who was a vicar, clearly. And he spent some time in Chicago running a small business there. And he was a justice of the peace in Buckinghamshire. So he was, you might say that he didn't necessarily need to write for a living, but wrote for a hobby. And there's nothing wrong with that. Jay Rothermel in his blog makes the, <laughs> makes the great comment. He says, of course, not all dead writers in the genre are classic. And Amias Northcote is a good example. And he says that most of the stories in this collection, in Ghostly Company, we just mentioned, is not very good. And Jay also mentions Matt Cowan. Now, Matt Cowan is also a follower of the podcast and is a, an author in his own right. And you can find him on Facebook. And he often comments on the podcast. Uh, uh, certainly, he's in, in touch with me. So both Jay Rothermel and Matt Cowan are guys, if you're interested in this genre, are, are people worth following for their commentaries. You can actually find a lot of stuff on the Facebook group, which is Classic Ghost Stories. It's not the Classic Ghost Stories podcast, which is one of my promotional engines. Engine is a bit of a posh word for it. It's not really an engine. It's more like a, a faltering, broken bicycle. But this one, the Classic Ghost Stories group, it has got lots of like, people talking about ghost stories. If you're interested in this kind of thing, it's worth checking into the Facebook group, Classic Ghost Stories, and there you will find Matt Cowan and uh, Jay Rothermel, amongst other people. So, yeah, going back to Jay's comments, uh, I'm going to rely on these. He says that basically, you know, of the, the, most of Amos Northcote's stories aren't much cop, really. But he, he singles out two, which are... And hence me reading this one. One is Brick at Bottom, clearly, which we've just re uh, read. And the other is The Late Mrs. Folk. And he also, Jay talks about how this story, certainly Late Mrs. Folk, but I also see in this story how connections with Arthur Macken. He says uh, it will strike a chord with those who appreciate Arthur Macken. So we're going to talk about Brick at Bottom. And I also reading this, if you, if you read Arthur Macken's stuff, the Hill of Dreams, etc., etc. Loads of stuff. The, the White P 
people and, and all of those great got pan. They're about the kind of rural countryside at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, when it's still fairly rural and people are still following the old ways, as it were. And of course, this is a, a, a glance at folk horror because folk horror has the premise that in the deep countryside all over the world, but particularly in the British Isles, people are still following the old ways, which are full of folklore. And, and I guess we would recently... Yesterday, in fact, at Alderley Edge in Cheshire, place I've wanted to go for a long time. I'm going to, I hope I don't get too distracted here. So Alderley Edge, if you've ever read Alan Garner's books, The Weird Stone of Brising Eamon and The Moon of Gomrath, they're set on this big outcrop of sandstone, heavily wooded out, which was a mining site back to the Bronze Edge. And it's got a really spooky atmosphere. So I'd wanted to go since, I've read the books when I was a kid, loved them. And I wanted to go when we happened to coming up through Staffordshire, back home to Cumberland and so we thought we'd stop off in Cheshire. I'm very keen on counties and I, I like to know which county I'm in. Sheila says why? I said no we, we're, we're in Warwickshire now. We've just left Oxfordshire, we're in Warwickshire and now we're going into Staffordshire and then we're going into Cheshire and then we're going into Lancashire and we would so we, we were away for a week down in Somerset so we did a few Somerset, Gloucestershire, there you have them. Somerset, Gloucestershire, Warwickshire, Staffordshire, Cheshire, Lancashire, Cumbria and home. So I like to know because, and she said, they're just lines on a map. And I go, yeah, but they're like, not, not Cumbria particularly, but some of the others are like a thousand years old, more than a thousand years old. So they've got to count for something. Anyway, we're at Alderley Edge. And I don't know if you know much about uh, Alexandrian witchcraft. So basically, Wicca started in in the in the middle of the 20th early middle just before the middle of the 20th century by a guy called Gerald Gardner and Gerald Gardner claimed that he had been he'd come across a coven an existing coven in the new forest in Hampshire the counties again and uh, that they had initiated him into the coven and he claimed that this was a these were peasant women basically that this was a survival of old pagan beliefs and so Wicca came, I don't know how many of them really believe this now, and claimed that it was a continuation of an old pagan religion. There's the witch cult in Western Europe. There was, it was a big deal in those days. Point, and even people like Robert Graves in his um, The White Goddess and The Golden Bough by James Fraser, they have this idea that with less or a greater conviction that there is this unbroken tradition of pagan belief going back to pre-Roman times that has never been broken, has been gone into hiding for fear of persecution. So Gerald Gardner in the 1940s, I think, Ronald Hutton wrote a great book about this called The Triumph of the Moon. Um, and he's a bit of a historian about these kind of things, uh, the occult and these movements. But anyway, Wicca. So basically, it seems to me that Gerald Gardner made it up and he, he concocted it. And his Book of Shadows, which is the great book of rituals and stuff, was ghostwritten by Alistair Crowley, who was clearly a magician, and Gardner knew him. Anyway, I'm going to get to where I'm going. So if you think about folk horror, it also plays on this belief that in the backwards of the British Isles and, you know, other places as well where that influence has travelled. So certainly we see, like Midsummer, certainly the Nordic countries, 
But, you know, you could imagine being in Germany and in certain parts of the USA, so the, the, the east and northeastern parts of the USA, possibly. Maybe, maybe northwestern as well, you know, like the Pacific Coast, which would have a different flavour. But again, I am going to get back to my point, honestly. But, so, and then there was a guy called Alex Sanders who started off as a medium, a trans medium, and then he's from Liverpool, from a working class family in Liverpool. And then he got initiated into Wicca, Gardnerian, I don't know how you say that, Wicca, that Gerald Gardner had made up. And he thought, nah, he did a bit of ceremonial magic as well, Alex Sanders. And he loved, if you look at his pictures, he's going for the Hammer Horror vibe. He really is going for the occult master. And there's another connection, Jonathan Sharp, who is the Hartwood Institute, who does, who is behind the music at the beginning of this podcast has done lots of other stuff where he samples some of Alexander's words and he says some crazy things like, you know, I could destroy all life on this planet, just I don't want to. Well, Alexander's created his own brand of witchcraft called Alexandrian Witchcraft, which incorporated more ritual magic, more ceremonial magic, a la the Golden Dawn and people like this. So we were at Elderly Edge. Some of a great deal of Alexander's fame in the 60s and 70s if you see those pictures of the beautiful naked women with knives and stuff and on Dennis Wheatley covers that is Maxine Sanders his wife so he teamed up with Maxine who happened to be blonde and beautiful and naked a lot and uh, this you know you can imagine the papers at that time really loving it and all the photographs they just loved it it's rather prurient wasn't it but there we are um anyway she was initiated at Alderley Edge where I was yesterday that is the connection. Long way of telling a short story, but <laughs> that's me all over. And of course, it was one of the reasons I went there because I'm, I like places that have a, a sense of the supernatural, I suppose. You know, that's not going to be a surprise to you. And so did Arthur Macken. And he wrote these stories, basically early folk horror, whereby there are still the fairy folk and beliefs. And he is, he's not, Arthur Macken isn't particularly ghosts. He's more like these lingering presences and spiritual auras and things. And that's what I see in Brick at Bottom. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, this is a really nicely done story until I got to the end. I, I still think it's okay, but I don't think it's a bad story at all. But the first thing is I, I quite like, so there's the frame. It, it's full of the cultural things of its time. So basically, these girls have to go with their father. In modern story, you wouldn't have their dad there, would you? You'd just have two girls going to stay in some house in the country. But in those days, and also I like the fact that she isn't allowed to search. The, the dim-witted servant and uh, the, the vicar father go searching for the missing girl. But, you know, Maggie isn't allowed to search. She, is, she can stay on the, on the trap because ladies can't do things like that. And they have to go and get robust men to do it. Again, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the case these days. It would be the girls, the powerful girls, the strong, independent women would be out doing it for themselves. Sisters would be searching the woods for themselves. They don't need no man, you know? But there we are. So, yeah, so I thought, yeah. And I'm thinking, like, this is fairy tales, isn't it? Forget the fact. Also, we need to say something about the Indian Army, for those who don't know. Clearly... The British Empire maintained a presence in the Indian subcontinent for 300 years or so. And um, there, there was an Indian army, a separate army that was British. It had British officers and Indian soldiers. 
And a lot of them, when they returned home, would retire in country places like this. So this is the background. And these were not, they're not, you know, the, the class structure is evident here. They are reasonably respectable people, these people. And you know how it is, it's really interesting how made you, they're not allowed just to scrape an acquaintance with anybody till they find out what their quality is, where they are in a social pecking order, because you couldn't be friends with, with other people. Yeah, the, I was reading Goethe in June. The Sorrows of Young Ver, Ver, Werther. And he, uh, he, he talks about this as well. So it was in the Germans as well, not just the English. But okay, so I'm thinking, yeah, this is good. That these, if I was going to write it, I would have made them more fairy-like. But, you know, the fae. But, and at the end, perhaps the story's better because it isn't like that. So at the end, what we see is the loss of the daughter because the Paxton's daughter, the disappeared, the red brick cottage, it was knocked down. These are kind of ghosts, aren't they? They're ghosts. They're not fairies. They're ghosts, as it turns out. And I was a bit disappointed because I was set up for fairies. I like fairy stories, dark fairy stories. And uh, the Paxtons appear to be ghosts. At, but on reflection, I think actually possibly that makes it stronger. Perhaps it would have been too... Well, it would be a different story, wouldn't it? I would have written it as fairies. But he wrote it as ghosts. And it appears that... The, their daughter faded away because she wasn't allowed to marry the man she loved. That's a classic theme in all stories, isn't it? In Western stories, I think, this idea that you, that romantic love is the most important thing. And we need to look at that, why, why that is, because this wasn't always the case. And then in the medieval period, you have the troubadours and you have this idea of courtly love. So, you know, we think of the King Arthur stories whereby Guinevere and Lancelot, you basically have your husband, and then a knight can fall in love with the, with the wife and they have this um, courtly love thing. And I think the idea that romantic love is the most important thing rather than just a, an arranged marriage, the idea that romantic love is so important in Western culture, it's like the big be-all and end-all, isn't it? it? It goes back to the Middle Ages to courtly love and, and we see it. It's not just us who thinks that. Our ancestors, our Edwardian and Victorian ancestors, thought that as well clearly in this story and if you don't get to meet to be with the one you love with all your heart you wither and die and this is what happened and of course then that killed the mother which killed Colonel Paxton through grief so it's a very sad ending for them all all because they wouldn't let her marry some thick thewed working class farm labourer because he was beneath them what a what a terrible mistake but it appears and this leads us on to stone tape theory. We just started a Discord server. It's really easy. It's just like a chat thing. Don't be, don't be frightened by Discord. Basically, if you look in the YouTubers' comments, and I can, I've, I've kept it to members and things, supporters, because that's what I promised them ages ago. We we're going to have a book club. We're going to look at stories. So anyway, I've set up a Discord server, which basically is a chat server, you know, where like you type your messages in. And it's also got a voice server so we can talk, and that's what I want to do. Anyway, uh, we're going to discuss stories. So we talk about the stone tape theory. And the reason for me mentioning the Discord server was that somebody on the Discord server said to me, Tony, that's me, what other podcasts do you listen to? And I listen to a lot of YouTube stuff as podcasts. As I'm driving, obviously, I don't watch it because I would crash. But I listen to stuff. But, but I do listen to Uncanny on BBC Sounds, which is 
Danny, I can't remember his second name now. He's a fantastic presenter and he looks at real life um, hauntings and stuff. And he's a very infectious presenter. And we were listening to that. And somebody mentioned stone tape theory. So stone tape theory is the idea that if, I think it's rubbish probably, but it's an idea that heavily emotional events such as this, where the girls died and then a mother and father died, that it imprints itself in the stone and the stone. And there are various elaborations on this to make it more kind of scientific in air quotes that if it's a sandstone with a high mica, a quartz content, then the quartz, because we use quartz, quartz as vibra, I think this is all bull, to be fair. But this is the idea that that surrounding somehow recorded the, the trauma of the girl and then the mother and the father dying. And it has a hunger, or the ghosts are, are projected with a hunger for young women. And I don't mean in that way. I mean, in, in they want to replace their daughter. They're so hungry for her. And this is what happened to both the Tinker's daughter and uh, the Mr. Maydew's daughter. I think it was, it wasn't Maggie. I get mixed up. There's two of them, isn't there? But anyway, there we are. So on reflection, I don't think it's a bad story. And I think Jay concluded that as well. It wasn't bad. So what else to say? I've been away for a week again. So the podcast's been coming out on a schedule, schedule. Oh, I said schedule. Shoot me. Schedule, schedule. And uh, yeah, so I, I haven't been here. We've been to Glastonbury and Rowright Stones in Oxfordshire. And we stayed in the Cotswolds. It was lovely. And then we came up through Cannock Chase. Cannock Chase has got loads of uh, werewolf sightings, mysterious huge woods, cryptids and UFOs. I didn't see any of that. We had a lovely time that we wandered in the woods and nearly got lost. And then we came up and I left my tripod behind in the car park. That was sad. That was very sad. I didn't realise till I was 80 miles further on. And then we got to Cheshire, Old Illy Edge, stayed in a tiny house that was basically somebody's garage, but converted. Um, you can actually look it up. It's on Airbnb. And it was uh, converted, basically fantastically converted to get two bedrooms and a living room and a kitchen and a shower out of a, of a, of a, of a garage and a small garage at that. And uh, so, but the stairs were a bit dodgy. But it was immaculately kept, and it was only a couple of miles from Alderley Edge, which is where I wanted to visit, and I've already talked about that. And I got lots of pictures of mushrooms because I think the damp has brought out these fly garricks and stink horns and shaggy caps and all sorts. I'm not a massive mushroom man, really. I don't even know if Sheila's into... She's into all sorts of other herbs, but uh, not mushrooms. Anyway, so news, calls to action. Yeah, go and... Subscribe to my Haunted Places channel, please, on YouTube. I need to get over a 1,000. I'm nearly there. I've had a good response. I start from 50, and I put the appeal out, and we're up to about 800. And there's some organic growth because it is, there are useful things there. And that is basically me talking about so-called real hauntings, and I'm moderately sceptical about some of them. But if you, if you like me droning on, then I'll put a link to that. So I'm going to do, now I remember... A link to my new channels, all free, all free, all free. Jay Rothermel's blog, because he's worth reading. He's very modest as well, but he knows a lot about ghost stories. And I'll probably try and sell you something. I don't know what. I might put my Dracula book up because I've streamed it, but the stream broke. So it's only about 11 hours, which is still a fair bit of listening. But the full thing's 16 hours. 
Well, you can have those 16 hours. I've got them in my Kofi shop. So you can get them. It's only $5.99. So if you want to, you can download them and listen at your leisure. I enjoyed doing Dracula, but it was a huge piece of work. But yes, yeah, so three things. Jay Rothermel's blog. Go and listen. Please sign up to my Haunted Places site. That's very kind of you. And if you're so minded, please buy my Dracula. Just in time for Halloween. Why not? Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back? 